Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. If you're new to our church, my name is Dave. I serve as one of the pastors here at Harvest, and we've been working our way through a series on Hebrews 11, and the subject of the series is faith. And faith is one of those words that is thrown about very often in the church, and most people have some general understanding of what the word means. But when I hear people use the word faith as they talk to one another, I think often I I understand that our ideas about faith may not be 100% correct. And so I want to make sure as we go through this series, we don't just drum up more enthusiasm about your existing ideas of faith, but that the idea of what faith actually is in the Christian experience becomes clearer and clearer for us. And one of the ways I've often heard faith talked about is as though it were an internal quality, just like gumption or resolve or tenacity or perseverance, like it's something that you can get more of by digging in and reaching deeper. And so people will say, have more faith. And in the face of terrible odds and horrible disappointment, And statistical failure. It's hard to hear that. And yet people try. They say, yes, I'll try to have more faith. If it's some quantity and I need more of it, I'll try to find it. Here's what I want to say about faith for the rest of this series. That faith is not an inherent quality of a human being that we can dig deeper and get more of. It is always, always the response to something great that produces belief. We don't dig in to get more faith. We have to look at something that produces faith. And that's why the person who looks inward will never, ever grow in faith. Only the person who looks upward and sees a God in whom that faith is justified. Somebody big enough to bear the weight of my dependence and my trust. If I don't see that God, I will never find faith In myself. And so I want to make sure we all have this clear picture of what faith is whenever we use that word here at Harvest is that faith is a big response to a big God. It's not a discipline of the heart that we grow in through effort alone. Are we good there? Are we together? So that's very important to me as your pastor that we understand that together. This morning I want to. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verses 13 to 16. And uh, I want to talk about a message called Homeland. Now, I don't know if you're thinking of Claire Danes when I say Homeland, but I'm really thinking about our spiritual homeland. Here what the, here's what the verses say. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, 
for he has prepared a city for them. Kind of regretting in a way that we're doing is down here and not up there where I could be preaching from the deck of the Death Star. I think that's pretty cool looking up there. It's kind of distracting. I want to ask you a question as we start things off here. Which life matters more to you? This life here and now on earth or the life that is to come? Which one of those two lives, which we as Christians recognize, truly matters more to you? Another way to ask it is, which one of these lives has a greater power over your mood and your emotional state? Which one of these lives holds your deepest hopes, is anchored to your deepest fears or beliefs? Here's one final way I could ask it. Which one of these lives has more to do with how you think about God? This life here on earth and how it's going? Or the life promised to you, which is forever beyond this life? Which one of those two lives forms the basis of your judgment of God himself? Now, if we're honest about it, I would say based on my experience talking with and listening to people in the church both this church and at least a hundred other churches throughout this country. I would say the majority of people day-to-day experience this life as far more central to their experience than the life to come. And that, in fact, it is this life which primarily forms our opinions of and reactions to God. So that we, we look at this life and how it's going We look at the world around us and we say, God is either this or he is that, because that's what I see here. The thing about pendulums is that they swing. And they swing from one end to the other. And there was a time in this country where where the Christian faith seemed so obsessed with the afterlife that it didn't seem to have any relevance for this life. Very few people talked about the impact that the faith was supposed to have on things like dating and career choices and a decision about where to live and what to name my kid and whatever else. And the pendulum is now swinging to where it has become a much more earthy faith. Christianity has a lot to say for us as modern Christians about how we experience daily life. It has a lot to do with my marriage, my friendships, my study, my career path. The thing about pendulums is when they swing, they don't stop in a good middle place. They keep going. And I think the pendulum has swung to this place where today in the church, I think it could be argued that we see the Christian faith primarily as having to do with benefit and experience in this life. And that the life which is promised to us beyond the grave is all but forgotten. That yes, we pay lip service to it. In theory, we acknowledge that when I croak, I will be with Jesus. And someday when I get close to that doorway, I'll think about that. But for now, I want to know what's Jesus doing here and now for me today. What difference is he going to make in this thing which I call my real life? Now, please don't get me wrong. I think Jesus cares deeply about this life that we call our life here. 
But we'll never really see him in this life if we at the same time forget that the greatest hope he's given us is not for a better life here. It is that regardless of how this life unfolds, he has made a secure promise to us about the life which is to come. And that the Bible is filled with reminders that this is actually our greatest hope and promise as Christians. That our greatest promise is not that Jesus will do something in this life, but that he has secured for us another life to come, which cannot be taken away, no matter how this life unfolds. And will you raise your hand with me and agree, this life almost never goes exactly the way you hope. I mean, in fact, it's almost as if somebody is writing a script that's exactly not what I asked for. I really had hoped as a young man to be among you sitting down there listening to somebody else preach. And here here I am, and this is my life. And that's just the way it is. So that no matter how our lives unfold here, the treasure we have through the gospel of Jesus Christ is first and foremost the treasure of eternity and not just your best life now. All due respect to Pastor Osteen. Jesus once asked this very pointed question. What do you benefit If you gain the whole world, but you lose your own soul, is anything worth more than your soul? Do you see that he could have said it another way? He could have said, what would you lose, really, if you gained everything in eternity, but had to forfeit this life? What would you really lose in the end? Because what he's pushing is this. Which one of these realities do you think is actually more important, more real, more enduring, this life or that one? I don't think we can lay hold of both. I think at some point, every spiritual pilgrim has to choose one of these lives to bank everything of their hopes and faith on. I think the person who has faith in Christ and what he has given can never look at that eternal hope and ask today, what have you ever done for me, God? I understand the state of heart a person can be in when they want to ask that, because life might be falling apart. Everything you care about might be in in danger, and I can understand how you can get to a point in your life where you can shake your fist at God, but what he's saying is, then you are losing sight of the greatest thing I could possibly give you. Because if I fix everything you're ticked off about, everything you're afraid of, and you get all of that squared away, but you lose the hope you have in me, what have you really gained in the end that's worth anything? In this passage, we see several things that I think are important to understand about this pilgrimage all of us are on towards our homeland. And the first is that this is a journey that cannot be made without faith. I remember the first time I stood on the Great Wall of China. I've stood on a number of times. It blew me away. This thing, every, every first grader learns it's the, one of the only man-made structures you can see from outer space, right? 
It's like 5,500 miles long, and people built it. It's insane if you think about it. And just the part of the wall that is prominent near Beijing, that part alone is 342 miles. And it looks kind of small maybe in the photographs because of the sheer scale of it. When you stand on it, it's a staircase because you see how it goes up and down the hills. Some of those steps are three feet high. My thighs were on fire walking. I was just like, oh my Lord, let's just go up. You know, that's how it was on the Great Wall of China. And I remember our guide was saying to us that several million people over the course of nearly 2,000 years built this wall. And what she said has haunted me ever since. She said there were entire generation after generation of the same family line whose whole earthly lives were spent just building one small section of the wall near their village. That great-grandpa, and then grandpa, and then dad, and then me, and then my son, and my sons after me, the entire span of all of those earthly lives were spent building a wall with each generation dying and not having any idea what the finished wall would look like. Many died during the construction. Hundreds of thousands, in fact, died during the work because it was dangerous and treacherous work. And when they died, they would just get thrown into the wall and covered with dirt and mortar and rock and become part of it. And I thought, what is it like for your entire one shot on this planet to be defined by a work that you will die never seeing finished? What keeps you going? Now, for those guys, a a gun to the head, I think, kept most of them going. It wasn't like a volunteer labor force. At one point, they estimate close to 70% of China's population was employed in the building of this wall. I think in the best days, what kept them going was the idea that someday our descendants will be safe behind this wall. I am laboring for a lifetime for the security of my children and their children. That's on the good days. On the bad days, I think I would have been like, seriously, what the heck? I'm going to spend my entire one shot on this planet building like five feet of this wall. And then I'm going to die. And what was it for? And the writer of Hebrews says that that is the nature of faith for a lot of these people, that they were still living by faith when they died. That the promises to which they had pinned their hopes were not realized while they were alive. That they followed God in faith the entire length of their human life. And then they died before they saw the punchline delivered. Some would read that as a tragedy. As a horrible cosmic joke from a God who loves to see human beings waste their lives. In fact, that's the way many, many people in this world think about God. Is he is full of himself, he is cruel, and he has very little regard for the way our lives unfold on this earth. I think quite the opposite is true. That I think this earth could not possibly hold the greatest things that God is promising to his people. And that if you get from God everything he could give you here before you die, you could not possibly call him the God of the universe. 
that he must have made us for something that this world cannot fully deliver. And that when he calls us forward in faith, the real reward is not these things which he has promised, but the fact that he has made himself known to us, that there is someone to place our hopes in, to follow. Someone who says, even if this story is disappointing when the chapter closes, the end of the story is forever a good ending. I have seen to it, and you can keep walking after me, because I have secured the very final chapter of everyone's story. I think another way to say it is, Christian, the Christian faith has never primarily been about this earthly life. It has never been. If you read the New Testament carefully, peppered throughout it are constant reminders that the Christian faith is primarily focused on and obsessed with the kingdom to come. To an eternity that is beyond this grave. That if you lose that in a real and visceral sense, you have lost the very foundation of the faith. That whatever he's doing for us here won't matter if you have lost what he has done for us in the great beyond. And so Paul and Jesus throughout the New Testament are constantly reminding us where our hearts and our minds should be fixed. Here's one example, Colossians 3 verses 1 through 4. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. I think what Paul is saying is, if you are a Christian, your first and greatest hope and treasure is not found here. Stop looking for that here. Your great treasure is first in heaven where he is. It is God himself who is your great treasure. And until you discover that for yourself, you will be like a person adrift on the ocean, dying of thirst, surrounded by water, none of which will quench your thirst. Paul says it a different way in 1 Corinthians 15, 19. I think this is another one of those tattoo where I've always think in terms of, people always ask me, what do you think about tattoos? If you got a tattoo, what would you get tattooed? And I, I've got this little list of verses that are tattoo-worthy. I mean, this is one of them, man. Look what he says. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. If you think that the greatest benefits of knowing Jesus are only for this life, you, above all other people on this planet, are to be the most pitied because he has offered you so much more. And if you only harness Jesus to make this life better, you have no idea the robbery you've committed against your own soul. You have no idea what you forfeited in looking at things that way.
In fact, Paul will go on to say that if we join the rest of humanity in this attitude, that this life is all that matters, the only logical conclusion is that we will have to join the world in their creed, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And if I really thought that tomorrow my dying would be the end of the story, then I can tell you right now I wouldn't be here this morning. You know where I'd be? I'm pretty sure I'd be in bed, actually. So would you. (laughs) Who would be here? If you really thought that death is the end of it, that this life is all that really matters, is the only place where God can show up to my satisfaction, that he must defend himself to me in this story, if that was it, then you're a fool to be here this morning. This is a colossal waste of time. Because if there is no eternal hope, get some sleep, eat some food, get drunk, enjoy yourself, party like it's 1999, because this is it, baby. There's nothing else. And what a pitiable way to approach life. That there is a real and valid promise of eternity held out, and you're saying, no thanks. I'll take the 60, 70 possible years I might have in this cesspool of a world. It's good enough for me. My love of the show Kitchen Nightmares has recently been rekindled. I'm convinced that Gordon Ramsay is a pastor masquerading as a chef. I'm learning how to be a pastor watching this profanity-laced man because something about him really resonates with me. And I see time again, he's trying to help people salvage their own restaurant. And they are so stubbornly devoted to something less. They will look at a multi-millionaire, Michelin star-rated chef and say, you don't know what you're talking about. My food is awesome. Yes, that's why you have no customers. And you have called a celebrity chef on a reality show to fix your broken business. Because you have all the answers. And yet I see the battle raging. This is the way I've always done. This is my show. It's my thing. I don't need nobody's help. I can fix it by myself. And I see them consistently making choices to hold on to their pitiful little thing when the promise of real success, of everything they dreamt of, is held out and they say, no thanks. In fact, I just watched one last night with my kids called Chappies. And we knew at the end of that episode, this dude is not going to make the changes. You can see the hope in his staff's eyes. Please go with this. But he dug in, and I looked up after the show. I looked up Chappies, and it says, site is now closed. (laughs) What do you expect? We're so satisfied with such a pathetically small and meager hope when real hope is being held out for us. Here's another part of this pilgrimage to our homeland. If our homeland is not this land, then by definition, we are foreigners and strangers. Now, in this country, I understand if you look at my face, mostly black hair, tiny little eyes, flat face, short stature, slight accent, And you say, that's a foreigner. 
I get it. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, the truth is we are all foreigners. If you're convinced of your eternal hope that your true heart's home isn't here, that this is not the place or the setting in which you are meant to experience the fullness of joy, the fullness of happiness and satisfaction, if this can never be home for you any longer, then you are a pilgrim in this life, like it or not. That you suddenly become a foreigner in the only home you've ever known. That word foreigner is actually a pejorative term. In both the Hebrew and the Greek, it is a pejorative term that you really don't want used to describe you. It's not like a kind, like, you know, like um, people with foreign passports in this line, U.S. citizens with U.S. passports. It's not this friendly sort of, are you a foreigner? It's, look at all them foreigners. What's this place coming to? This neighborhood is going down the drain. Look at all them foreigners. It's that kind of foreigner we're talking about. Not the, oh, look at the diversity they're bringing. Let's, oh, gosh. Look at all of them people. They don't belong here. They're not one of us. That word stranger is actually a word that you could also translate as sojourner or nomad. It depicts a person who is physically here now, but only in transit. They are passing through to another place. That yes, they are here with me in the same way that the person I sit next to on the airplane for 12 hours is like my buddy, my companion for the journey. But isn't it always that awkward moment when you've been talking on the plane, you kind of pseudo know each other, and then you arrive and you get out, And then you're like, all right, see you never. (laughs) Like, I'll never, ever see you again. Ever. (laughs) And it's always a weird, I don't know how to feel about that moment. Like, hey. And then when you see each other again at the baggage claim carousel, you're like, oh, what a reunion. You you know how the weird thing is like, you're companions for such a defined and short part of the journey. But somewhere in the back of both your minds, you know, Let's not go too far. I don't need your phone number or your email. We're never going to see each other again. But I'm glad we sat next to each other on the way home. In fact, what's the first question you ask somebody on, on the plane? Are you leaving or are you going home, right? I mean, isn't that always the first question? I'm going, me too. Awesome. Let's sit next to each other while we do that. The pilgrim is a traveler, and they don't belong here Because they belong there. It's not that we're called to belong nowhere, to be homeless wanderers, but the pilgrim, unlike a true nomad, the pilgrim is not at home here because he has a home elsewhere. I remember on a very long travel day from Indonesia by way of Sydney, it was the longest travel day of all my extensive travels. 40 plus hours in one single travel day, not a wink of sleep. I started in Bandung, Indonesia, and plane, train, automobile. The only thing I didn't ride was a boat. And I just remember how grueling a day that was. One bright spot was I got to have noodles at the Sydney airport with Holly, and it was fun. We, we got to talk and That was a nice little respite, but I'll tell you, that was the longest travel day. And the only thing that kept me going, I learned that day that visions and the hope of home has a powerful ability to allow a person to endure the vagaries of a journey. If I didn't have home to anticipate, 
That trip would have been a nightmare. It is so uncomfortable to sit in one place for 40 hours. It was so uncomfortable. But what kept me going were dozens of pictures of my family on my iPad. Here's what he's saying. That people who, who say such things, who call themselves foreigners and pilgrims on, in transit on the way home, they're showing that they're not looking for home here, but they're thinking of a better country, a country of their own. That there was a place they lived, but someone has held out the promise of a greater place, and it has captured their hearts, and now they are pilgrims obsessed with this new homeland, and they have left the place they once called home in order to follow this God of promise to yet another home. When Abraham left his homeland of Ur, I love this painting. This is by a Hungarian artist named Molnar. And it depicts Abraham with a little uncertainty on his face, heading off. Now, when any new journey begins, there's lots of excitement and hope and vision. Every immigrant, every foreign exchange student, every student that's went off the university, every world traveler knows that when you're setting out, it's full of excitement. You're like, wow, it's going to be such a great life. But always comes a moment when you realize, I'm not home. I know I'm supposed to live here now, but I can't feel like home yet. And you long for the home you used to know. And you want to go back there. And what does he say? He says that if they had been thinking only of that country they left, they could have always gone back. And that's the truth of Abraham. He was living like a king in Ur of the Chaldeans, in this lush land, very fertile. He was a wealthy man, and God met him in this place and said, Hey, Abram, let's go. Go where? Stop asking questions. Just follow. keep my butt in view. Let's go. And as long as you can see my back, you're headed in the right direction. Where are we going? Someplace you will call home. An amazing promise. Your children will be ballers because you left. Let's go. And so he left. And he left not in crisis. He left not in protest. There was nothing wrong with where he lived, but he left because the promise of a greater home was held out and it seduced his heart and he followed in faith. He died without ever owning a piece of land except the burial plot where he and his wife were laid to rest. He insisted on buying that so that at least he would own a small postage stamp piece of land because in fact that was the promise God made to him and his descendants. He died before he saw the promise realized but he could always have gone back to Ur. God didn't post an angel with a flaming sword at the gate of Ur and said don't let Abram back in. He could always have gone home. And in fact I think that's the tension we will always live with as modern day followers of Jesus Christ is that to follow Jesus, at one point we had to say, this world is not my home, I'm just a little bit passing through. Remember that old grammatically incorrect song we used to sing in the 80s? At some point, every Christian had to say that, that I am leaving this home to set out for a home that is yet to come. But the tension we will always live with almost every step of that journey is that other home is right there. I could just go back. 
And we never feel more like going back than when this journey is getting harder and harder. When we ask, why did I ever sign up for this guilt-ridden, rule-filled existence? Why did I ever sign up for a conscience when I used to be carefree? Why did I ever allow the word thou shalt not to enter my vocabulary when I used to live in the land of thou shalt and can and must? Why would anybody set off on a journey like this? As long as you keep your homeland in view, you can live in that tension. Because the other home is always right there. You can go back. And in fact, Paul testifies in his second letter to his spiritual son, Timothy, that a man named Demas, who used to be a part of the team, did exactly that. Do you remember this in 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 10? Timothy, please come as soon as you can. Because Demas has deserted me, because he loves the things of this life, and has gone to Thessalonica. I think the Christian faith has lost more pilgrims to a return to their home than to anything else. I don't think Demas is unique in the history of the Christian faith. But I think many, many people like him. Just like Cypher in the Matrix. Do you remember? I know the steak is just a computer algorithm. I know this is not real. But it's delicious. And if this is just code and it's all an illusion, I'll take it. Because it sure is better than the real world out here. And that longing to go back to where we came from will ever be with us. And the only way to keep moving forward is to fix your faith on this great homeland, which is ours to come. In one of the earliest works of apologetics called the Epistle to Diognetus, I think, I think or Dignatus, depending on how you pronounce it. Here's what it says. Christians dwell in their own countries, but only as sojourners. Every foreign country is a homeland to them, and every homeland is foreign. Their existence is on earth, but their citizenship is in heaven. So I'll ask you a question. Do you live here, or are you on your way home? Do you live here, or are you on your way home? Let me just give you one last thing here. This homeland is not a lure so that God can get a hook into our mouths and yank us out of the water. It's not a bait. It's not a lure. It's not a trap. It's a promise. And the promise is real. And the country we hope for is, in fact, far better than this one. Now, I'm going to start by making this disclaimer that this world isn't such an all-horrible place. There is an abundance of beauty and distraction and pleasure to be found even in this broken earth. Golfing off the coast of an ocean in 75-degree weather with your four, three best friends, you've got to be the fourth, some men might say, or women, 
That's one of those things that you say on that day, it doesn't get much better than this. The first warm day of the year, warm enough to blast the music and roll down the windows and feel the hair blowing in the wind. That's a good day. But as good as this world can be, I'm hard-pressed to think that an infinite God has used up his imagination down here. You know the feeling like when you've anticipated a movie for so long, like Age of Ultron or Mad Max? And yeah, they're great movies. Great enough to get you actually animated. You're like, oh my gosh, so good! But then the movie ends. And your life still sucks. <laughs> and you realize, if this is as good as it gets, wow, God, study harder. I've got to believe that on the best day of my earthly life, I have yet to see what God calls good fully realized. That this homeland I am yearning for is a better land than this one ever could be. And it's where my citizenship is. So that even though this earthly journey takes many uninvited, undesirable twists and turns, I can survive that journey because my hopes are placed in a better home. I don't have to call it quits. I don't have to give up here. I can endure anything for a season because I live somewhere better and I'll be there one day soon. When this journey becomes unbearably difficult, don't condemn God as unfair or cruel because he's the only one preparing for you a better home beyond this life. You can shake your fist at him and blame him for the world we have ruined as human beings. But you have no other friend preparing for you a home beyond this one. And I promise you, at the precipice of death, everyone believes in a God somewhere. There are no brave deathbed atheists. When this home has expired, you're not ever going to be ready to just blip out of existence. And you have only one friend preparing for you a home beyond this one. Resist the temptation to condemn God for the unpleasantness of this home because the truth is this was never meant to be your home. You can endure anything in transit because your home is a far greater place yet. And for those who understand that, they can welcome death not as the end of the road, but as the doorway to what is really life. Death is always a terrible thing. Don't get me wrong, I've never enjoyed a funeral. But for those whose hopes are placed in the homeland beyond, death is the doorway to what is truly our life. I'll close with this story of one illustration of a man who died very much in the reality of this homeland hope. 
we all know a man named D.L. Moody, do we not? Especially if you're from Chicago, you can't not know D.L. Moody. He died in 1899, which for me as a history buff and a a sort of closet numerologist drives me crazy. He was so close to seeing 1900. He died in 1899. That'd be hard for me. I'd be like, God, a few more months. Just let me... Anyway. He had been sick and in deteriorating health for some time before he died. And as he lay in what would become his deathbed... His son heard him muttering a number of things. On one occasion, his son, Will, said he heard his father say these words in a fever. Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. Fascinating, wondering what people right at the edge of death must be seeing. And so his son ran to his side and said, you're dreaming, father. And he replied, no, Will. This is no dream. I've been within the gates. I have seen the children's faces. A little bit later that day, as he rallied and then deteriorated again, here's what Moody said in the hearing of his children. Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. This is bliss. This is glorious. Now, if you're a daughter and you hear your dad saying stuff like, you're like, "Uh ah, no. And she ran in the room and she knelt by his bed and she began praying fervently for his recovery. And these were his last words to her. No, no, Emma. Don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. I have been looking forward to it. That's the way you go home. That's the way you go home. In the same year, Colonel Robert Ingersoll, a Civil War veteran and the most celebrated atheist in the United States in his day, also died in 1899. So distraught was his wife over his passing, she could not deal with the finality of his death, and she clung to his body in their family home until health officials demanded she remove it for burial. There's still a well-known atheist-friendly lecture series at Harvard named in his honor. And the journalist who attended his funeral said that the air of despair and hopelessness was so palpable, it was hard to be there. We will all leave this world one day. Even if you are 20 and can still touch your toes without bending your knees. Even though you still have no wrinkles. And you could do a chin up. You're going to go one of these days. It's going to come probably faster for some of us than for you. But this is not anybody's final home. And there's a decision to be made in faith. Will you build your whole life hoping in this home? Or in faith, journeying in transit to your homeland? When it's your time to breathe your last breath of earthly air, will you flail in fear? Or will you go home?
and we really go home. I'm already beginning to pray that when it's my time to die, I will go out like D.L. Moody, welcoming the day when I pass from this place to finally go home. And this is faith that I can endure this life because I have a home and I will never leave that home. And my God, my Savior, is securing it for me even now. What a friend we have in Jesus. Let's pray. I'm fully aware that for some of you this morning, any sermon I delivered would have been difficult to receive because I know where your life is today. And there's a tenderness in God's heart as he thinks about what you're going through. I don't believe that he wants to imprison you in this logical argument where you have no choice but to accept this promise. I believe he wants to show you that this home he is preparing for you is going to carry you through this day and to the next one. If this is all there is, how can you go on? If in this world you've seen all there is to see of God, how can he be God? There is so much more, and it is promised to each of us who are in Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus, let's pray this morning that he would anchor our hope firmly to his promise of a homeland beyond this world. If you haven't yet trusted Jesus, and this life down here in this place is all you have, why don't you in faith, even on a dare, invite him to show you a glimpse of what you might be missing. I think if you see it, it'll tip the scales for you. It'll change your life. So let's go to God for a minute and let's pray our own quiet response to him. And then we'll invite the band to lead us out in some songs. So let's just pray in our own private response to the Lord. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.